Welcome. That's a very familiar scene. Um, you've probably seen the, these movies played on Easter for years and years and years. This is Palm Sunday. Um, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord were the cries that were shouted that, that day. My name is Pastor Eric Norris. I'm the uh, Pastor of Discipleship and Connections here at Westview. And before I get started, I just need to make a quick uh, correction. Uh, last week I preached and I mentioned it was, I get two weeks in a row and, and I often kind of quib about being the pastor in a pinch or the bullpen pastor and I just speak when someone can't be here. And uh, Pastor Brian reminded me this week that that's a, a kind of a little unfair. I get to speak whenever I want if I just say that. So uh, it, don't, don't, chide him for that. And probably after today, you might say another year's good. Uh, I don't know. So I'll, uh, I'll let you let it go. See, I can't even not quib about quibbing. So that's just, that's who I am. So you should have gotten a connection card when you walked in. That connection card, there are some sermon blanks that you can fill in, some places to take notes. We are going to cover lots of scripture today. Some of it's going to be overhead, some of it will not. I encourage you to jot down those scriptures so that you can review them this week um, as we go through this week. So today we're starting um, a series um, called Unexpected. I love the logo because if you see within that word unexpected, there's a box around the word expect. And so we're going to be talking about the events of Holy Week starting today. And we're going to talk about the unexpected things that took place during that week, how those things were expected, um, and then... The, where we want to get to is what can we expect or what is the question for us moving forward. And so this week is the culmination of Jesus' life, his ministry and his fulfillment. And uh, it fulfills promises that were made centuries before uh, this day ever comes. And so that ride on a donkey into Jerusalem for Passover would set in motion a series of events that would forever change the world. Now, it's interesting that uh, starting with today's message, um, those events, for the most part, we kind of use these as uh, days that we just check off our calendar. Well, we've gotten through Advent, we've gotten through Easter, Holy Week. Rather than let the events of those, of those biblical truths speak to our hearts. And so what we want to do with this Holy Week is we want you to go deeper. We want you to look at these events maybe in ways that, that have deeper meaning, that bring you uh, a closer in relationship with your walk with Christ. Um, and so with each of these events, as I mentioned, there were things that were unexpected, um, that there were those that were present and witnessed these events. Uh, and so they, they looked at things and that might have been a bit odd to them. There were things that were expected, natural responses to Jesus' ministry that we see all along his life and ministry. Um, and then those lead to the question, what do we expect as a result? As Lene mentioned, we're going to have podcasts on Monday and Tuesday and Thursday about these events. We're going to have a, a good Friday service on Friday, and then uh, next Sunday we'll have a sunrise service and, and resurrection services. So we invite you to go with us on that journey as we celebrate this that we call Holy Week. So it's Palm Sunday, the day Jesus enters Jerusalem on that donkey, um, and the town was abuzz. Every Passover, the town is abuzz in Jerusalem for Passover because thousands and thousands of people enter because all people of Jewish faith were encouraged to go and celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. So the city swelled, much like K-State, uh, Manhattan on a K-State football day where just 50,000 people invade the town all on one day to celebrate that one event. That's what's taken place during Passover. And so not only are all of the, the Jews traveling to celebrate Passover, that also means it's like Christmas time for the merchants. 
It's the time where they make their money. They're buying and selling sacrificial animals and exchanging money. You're going to hear about that in one of the podcasts. And so the town is abuzz with what's going to take place um, during this. And all four Gospels record the events of this week. And it's interesting that all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that record this, when you think about the events of Holy Week in context of the story of the Gospels, the Gospels spend the majority of their time on this one week. In fact, the Gospel of John takes up about half explaining Holy Week. The Gospel of Mark, about three-fifths of it are this week. One-third of Luke's Gospel and two-fifths of Matthew all used talking about the events of Holy Week. And so the, the whole life and ministry of Jesus in the rest of the Gospels, but they spend an inordinate amount of time on this week. Why is that? Well, as I mentioned, it changed the world forever. The events that set in motion on that donkey ride changed the, the world. So we're going to use for our text this morning, John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. Um, and so we're going to uh, read that. I think this one is overhead uh, for you, but you can follow along as we read. Matthew, or John chapter 12, it reads this. The next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. That's the buzz I'm talking about. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God or Hosanna, blessed on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on the donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was the fulfillment of prophecy, but after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign. Then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. And so with that scripture, we see various groups of people that all have interaction in this event. And they all respond in different ways. And so what I want to do today is I want to, to tie some Old Testament prophecy and scriptures to this event and show you the significance that this was much more than a donkey ride into Jerusalem. And so we're going to cover lots of scripture. Again, write those down. Just a little background. So six days before Jesus uh, rides into Jerusalem, he, he stops in Bethany, in Bethpage, and there was a friend who lived there, a friend by the name of Lazarus. Now, what do you remember about Lazarus? Jesus had raised him from the dead. That, that's pretty important stuff, right? And so Jesus had raised him from the dead, and so Lazarus has a couple of sisters, Mary and Martha, so he stops there for a time of kind of a respite before this ride in. And it's a wonderful time. He gets to, to recline in the home, and Mary anoints his feet with some expensive perfume, probably that was, were upwards of maybe a, a year's salary, so it's pretty a, expensive a sacrificial gesture on Mary's part. But the crowds here that Jesus is on the way, they're familiar with Lazarus' story and what took place there, and so they're all coming out. Before he even arrives, they're coming out um, to gather. Now, why are they coming out? Well, they're coming out because it's Jesus. They've heard the stories. They've seen him feed the multitudes. They've seen him raise people from the dead. And so for some, it's kind of like a circus. They're going to go see what Jesus is going to perform next. Others are intrigued. Others are expecting this Messiah, their Savior, to come although he comes in a way different, an unexpected way than they're, they're ready for. And so everyone reacts differently. That's what's taken place. 
And so above just the normal excitement of Passover, we have this buzz of Jesus coming into town and his interest his, his entrance also brings a tension and a nervousness because outside of Passover, there were some groups that didn't like this, the Romans and the Pharisees and the Sadducees to be exact. And so that's what's taken place before this ride. And in Luke's gospel, we see a turning point in Jesus' attitude in ministry. So after three years of, of ministry and miracles, with the Passover arrive, uh, coming Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, we read this in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. It says, at this time, as the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Some translations say he set his face toward Jerusalem. And so I wondered, what did that mean exactly? That he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Well, I grew up in a family of seven, six boys. So the, way, the best way I can understand resolutely is that everything about our lives was a challenge and a game. And so even bedtime, we, we played this game when the lights were supposed to be out called Kill Em in the Dark. And so all of us boys slept in one room because my sister, there's only one, she got a room to herself. And so we're all crammed in two sets of bunk beds. And, and so when the lights went out, it was hand-to-hand combat. And we would crawl around on the floor with whatever weapon you could find. And we would, we would engage each other. And quite often, that ended in tears. Either because my dad brought the razor strap up. Those were legal in those days. And I was number five, and so I usually took the brunt of the beatings. But we were resolute that, that we were going to, to engage in this combat, and there was going to be a winner. We also played a game called Fusketball. Now, if you've never heard of it, I know. But we had built a little homemade basketball hoop from a bicycle rim, and all we had in those days were Nerf balls. You couldn't dribble the things. And so it was football with a purpose, and the purpose was to get the ball in the hoop. And so it was, it was root hog or die, I'm telling you, to get the ball in the hoop, and it often ended in blood. And so we resolutely determined to get the ball in the hoop. Now, for Jesus, this wasn't a game, <laughs> But he resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem. He had purpose. He was resolute to fulfill that purpose. That's what it means. That's when Jesus' attitude changes. That's when the significant things of of this ride in Jerusalem begin to come into shape. And here's what I want you to, to know this morning. Everything about that week, from the ride in to his resurrection, Everything about his life and ministry pointed to this week. That's why so much of the Gospels takes, uh, explains this. Everything about Jesus' life and ministry points to the events of this week. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, this week in those unexpected things. And folks, it wasn't happenstance. It wasn't unplanned. It didn't catch God off by surprise that this all happened. It was all planned. Behold the Lamb of God, the scriptures say, who take away the sins of the world. That's the ride. That's the Lamb that rides into Jerusalem on that day. So this resolute promise, this um, setting your face toward Jerusalem, it, it fulfilled a promise. It fulfilled a promise to Israel. A promise that we read in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where hundreds of years before, uh, Isaiah says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
God with us. This journey fulfilled a promise to Mary and Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will give birth to a son and you will, and you will give him the name Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. And it fulfills a promise to us in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so this journey in Jerusalem fulfilled a promise. It was also a part, uh, it was also a part of God's plan. As part of the Godhead or the Trinity, Jesus was determined to please his father, wasn't he? And in the Gospel of John, we read several times about this. In John chapter 8, verse 39, we read, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, Jesus said, Then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me, for I always do what pleases him. Oh, that that would be my prayer, that I would only do what pleases him. And so, as part of the Godhead, um, Jesus was determined to please his father. And then finally, as fully man, he wasn't looking forward to it. You recall a prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane in, during this week when Jesus prays, Lord, if there's any way this cup could pass for me, let it be. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And so this ride came to fulfill a promise. It was a part of God's plan uh, to please the, and it pleased the Father, and he wasn't looking forward with it. He was human by all standards. 100% God, yes, but 100% human when it came to looking forward to death on a cross. That couldn't have been pleasant. So let's talk about that ride. Here's sermon note number one, an unexpected ride. An unexpected ride. In verse 12 of the text, we read, um, the next day. Now, John's account doesn't include the donkey in great detail. The other three gospels do in Luke chapter 19. God, uh, go to the village, Jesus said, ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. He needs it to ride in Jerusalem. And so the next day, the next day is the day after he leaves Bethany. He leaves the home of Lazarus. And here's where we begin to understand how amazing God is and how, how his, the truth of his word is so amazing. Because this day was prophesied, as we've talked about, hundreds of years before. And one of those prophecies is Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah 9, verse 9 reads, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion, or Israel. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, king, comes to you righteous and having salvation gentle and riding on a donkey. And when I read that, I just, I hear the screeching of this tape having to be rewound so I can hear it again. Because when I think about a king approaching, the words gentle riding on a donkey isn't what I envision. How many of you have seen the movie Ben-Hur or Gladiator? Now, when, when the king rides into battle, how does the king ride into battle? On a donkey? No, he rides in on a horse. And usually it's a white horse. And sometimes it was a pair of white horses pulling a steel or iron chariot. So when you're going into battle, when your king is going into battle, that's the picture I get, is this Ben-Hur big feller riding into battle on a big white horse. 
And, and by the way, one day Jesus is going to come on a white horse. It just isn't here. <laughs> and so that's the picture I get. But rather, he comes in, in on a donkey, and a donkey signifies humility and peace. And in fact, the same king who rode out on a white horse after he was victorious, oftentimes would ride back into the city on a donkey, which signified we're victorious. Peace is here. We've won the battle. And so that donkey signified peace. That's how Jesus enters Jerusalem. That's kind of not what the people expected. They're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but they're expecting a king, a rescuer, a deliverer. So, Jesus enters on a donkey, and that would have elicited a number of responses from the people looking on that day. Um, the crowd saw this as a sign that Jesus, their rescuer, was coming to bring peace from Roman occupation. That's the king they were looking for, was an earthly king. The Romans were probably wondering why he was riding a donkey. Who in the world did he defeat in battle? And then the religious leaders saw this as an active, active rebellious action against their authority. So, there's one more thing I want you to know about this donkey ride and the significance it takes place on Palm Sunday um, that's revealed in God's truth. And we're going to look at prophecy. Hold on to that thought for just a moment. And so, we've mentioned the buzz in the air. That day present, we've seen that there were four groups that witnessed the event. In verse 13, we read about the crowds that welcomed him. The crowds that welcomed him with shouts of Hosanna. And those shouts of Hosanna also come from the Old Testament. In Psalm 118, verses 24 to 26, we read this. The people exclaim, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Please, Lord, save us. Please, Lord, please give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, the Hosannas, the crowd on Palm Sunday are shouting. It's the right song. They're just kind of shouting it for the wrong reason. Again, they're expecting this earthly rescuer. They were waiting for a savior, but they were looking for the right of the wrong kind of savior. And the truth is, we quote that verse a lot, don't we, Psalms? This is the day the Lord has made. We sing praise songs about it, and they're all very truthful. But in the context of, of Psalm 118, it points to a very specific time. You know what that time is? Palm Sunday, when Jesus rides his donkey into Jerusalem when the Messiah has finally come. That's what Psalms talks about when, it, when they shout and the crowds are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he. They're looking for that, that rescuer, that king. The other group that saw and wondered were the Pharisees. They saw his entrance as a threat. In Luke chapter 19, verse 38 to 40, uh, after the blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the Pharisees and the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he says, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So the Pharisees, they, they weren't prepared for this. You see, they had been at odds with Jesus all through his ministry. They were ready for this to end. And just a teaser, this battle doesn't end right here. T tomorrow's podcast, we're going to talk more about the battle he has with the Pharisees. Um, but they wanted to end all this. They wanted an end of all of these senseless healings on the Sabbath, of all things, that broke their religious man-made laws. How dare he heal on the Sabbath? They wanted an end to the godly truth that he, he preached to the crowds that countered what they taught. He wanted an end to these gathering masses who were drawn to his miracles and his love. They wanted an end, but Jesus brought something new. 
That's why the crowds gathered. They gathered because he was approachable. Jesus was approachable. He, wasn't, they, he didn't hold them off at arm's length and check off, did you wash your hands? Did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? He said, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So Jesus' words were fresh. They were new. The Pharisees' religion was one of an external, what do you see, religion. Jesus took it to an internal, personal relationship level. Who am I? They wanted an end. The Romans feared it was the start of a revolution. The words of Jesus' influence had preceded him to town. And although Rome's method, when, when Rome would conquer a, a surrounding nation, they oftentimes didn't force the people into what, believing what they believed. They would let you do what you wanted to do as long as it didn't get in the way of what they wanted to do, which was tax you <laughs> and rule you. But when that moment that, that would become kind of rebellious or they saw some type of an uprising, then they became nervous. And they saw this as the beginning of a revolution because there were four different types of Jewish sects listening that day. One of those sects was, were known as the Zealots. And the Zealots were a very passionate group of, of Jews who were trying to force the issue of Jesus' kingship. They were trying to force this open rebellion and, and overcoming or overthrowing the Roman government. And so Rome knew this. They were, they were worried about this. But after questioning uh, Jesus, we get from Pilate, this famous scripture in Matthew chapter 27, verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. So he throws it right back at him. Jesus was no threat to him. And we know from that, the way that all transpires, that actually he took out Barabbas, who was the zealot, and he took out Jesus, and he said, all right, who do you want? And the crowd said, Barabbas. What about this, Jesus? Crucify him. So the Romans feared revolution, uh, revolution and rebellion. And then verse 16, the disciples were the fourth group that were a part of the crowd. They felt the excitement. How could you not be surrounding Jesus when the palm branches are waving and the crowds are shouting and singing? How could you not get caught up in that excitement? And so they, they were a part of all of this. It's interesting. Jesus had told them this day was coming, hadn't he? Several times he had tried to tell them, the Son of Man must be lifted up, meaning the cross. And when he told them that, their reaction was rather unexpected. Now, Jesus expected it, but their reaction was, Peter tried to talk him out of it. He got rebuked. James and John were more concerned about whether they could sit at the right hand of the Father when Jesus did get to his kingdom, and Judas was working on a plan to betray him. So although they sensed the excitement and they heard the hosannas, they had, didn't really put it all together. But I have to give them credit. We read in these verses that later, after the resurrection, they finally kind of put two and two together, and then it makes sense to them, and they ultimately change the world. That's the part of the group, that's the group I want to be a part of, is the world-changing group. The group that expects the king. I may not get it all the time right now, but if I'm deep in this truth, and if I'm trying to apply and answer the questions that are relevant to me, I want to be a world changer. That leads us to sermon note number two. The entrance was unexpected, but there was an, un there was an expected exit. An expected exit. So what was that exit? Well, 
Jesus knew that the shouts of Hosanna would soon turn to cries of crucify him. His followers would desert him. His disciples would deny him. And so there was an exit away from him. And we get an interesting insight into, into Jesus as he begins this, resolutely, this resolute journey to Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 19, verse 41, we read this. Jesus says, but as he came, this is of Jesus, as he came, Jesus, closer to Jerusalem, he saw the city ahead and he began to weep. How I wish today that you all, you of all people would understand the way to peace, but now it is too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. See, he knew this exit was going to take place. He knew that there was going to be some desertion, some questions, and he knew that the majority of the people there were looking for the wrong kind of king. So was Jesus weeping because death was imminent? Was he weeping because he mourned the earthly loss of his life and his family and his friends? No. He wasn't weeping because of that. He was weeping because they missed it. They missed it. Now, I want you to take a deep breath. We're going to go through some numbers now. And I confess, I, I, these numbers aren't new to me. Or they are new to me, but not um, new. And I didn't come up with them. Um, in fact, I'm not very much a math person. I was a music teacher by trade, so I could do 4, 4, 3, 4, 6, 8. And if you're a music person, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If not, that just understand that I'm not a math person. But there are some numbers from some prophecies that I think are very relevant to this story. That's where we're going to head next. So put on your math thinking cap for a moment. We're going to jump back to Daniel chapter 9, verse 25 and 26. And that, here are those verses. Now listen and understand, Daniel says, seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time of the command or decree is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing, and a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. And that takes place in 70 A.D. And so Daniel's telling about the events of this week. So let's dive into these numbers a little bit. And I wish I had a slide, but it was too complicated for me to slide. So just, we're going to go through this. When I first encountered this, I, I thought, that's pretty amazing. So then I kind of did some, some back research, and I looked at some other pastors and their Palm Sunday messages, and I saw it time and time again, and it, it was amazing to me. So Daniel is writing this about circa 530 B.C. Now, he talks about the prophecy that of Nehemiah and Artaxerxes. So King Artaxerxes is king of Babylon, uh, uh, is the king, is it Babylon? I'm looking at Mary and he's my history guy. So King Artaxerxes is, is the king and Nehemiah is the Jewish servant that serves in his court. And he's broke, heartbroken about Jerusalem. And so he goes and he begs the king to be able to go and rebuild Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah, Artaxerxes gives this decree, this letter that says, yes, go and do that. Give him whatever he needs to make that happen. And so we can trace the, the dates because we, of the historical significance. We know when King Artaxerxes came to rule. Um, we know that this date then is around Nisan 1. That's when the decree is issued. And in fact, we can trace that date then of the decree. It says 20 years into his reign, this decree is issued. And so that sets it at about, it sets it at March 5th, 444 B.C. 
Now, I know this is a lot of numbers, so we're just going to walk slowly. But so a decree is issued, and then it says seven sets of sevens, and the temple will be rebuilt. So seven times seven is? All right, so 49. So if we add those 49 years, then the temple is rebuilt. All right? Then it says after that time, 69 sets of sevens, um, and this king will ride. And so when you add, or 62 sets of seven, so 62 times seven is, is 439 years. So if we add 439 years in Daniel's prophecy, and the 49 years from the decree to the time the temple is rebuilt, that's 483 years. All right, you with me so far? Well, we're going somewhere, I promise. So 483 years. Now, the Jewish calendar only had 360 days unlike our calendar. And so when you add, when you multiply the 483 years times the number of days in the Jewish calendar, you come up with the number of 173,880 days. All right, so just do this so I know you're awake. So we have this number, 173,880 days, and when you begin with March 5th, 444 B.C., and you add that number of days, you arrive at the date of March 30. 33 AD. You know what that day is? That's Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus rides in to Jerusalem. Here's the sad part. They were Jewish folks. They had this in front of them. They could have known the king was coming. And not just the king, that the king of kings was coming. Jesus presents himself as a king, and that is significant because all through Jesus' ministry, he tried to push that out. When they would try to write, make him stand up and say, hey, be our king, be our rescuer, they wanted him to, to rescue them from Rome, and what was his response? It's not my time. It's not my time. Now it's his time. And he presents himself as the king. The sacrificial lamb. Interesting that this ride takes place on, on lamb's selection day of Passover, which was five days before the Passover event. And so Jesus prevents himself as a sacrificial lamb, rides on a donkey in gentleness to enter the city as the king of kings. It was his time, and they missed it. So rather than the king of kings... They were expecting a king. And that's often what gets in our way, isn't it? Oftentimes, we're looking for the wrong type of king when we have to answer the question of Jesus in our lives. So we see this mass exit. His followers left him, Matthew 26, 56. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. His disciples betrayed him. Peter denied him three times. Judas sold him out. The Pharisees crucified him through false accusations and lies. And all through this, Jesus resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem. One of the most beautiful pictures in all of God's scripture is this. Jesus' peaceful ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, the undeserving injustice of the trials, an agonizing trip to Golgotha and his violent death on a Roman cross wasn't the unexpected secondary plan of a God who was unprepared. It was the expected culmination of a plan for our redemption that was known before the foundations of our creation. Jesus 
resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem to pay the price for my sin. Back in the day when soundtracks on Easter Sundays, you, if you were a vocalist, you went looking for the soundtrack for the big Easter song that week. And for years, I sang one that was one of my favorites that had the line, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. That's the resoluteness with which Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, but now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us far better covenant with God based on better promises. That's the significance of this ride. Jesus becomes my high priest. He becomes my king of kings. And I don't know what you're facing today, friends. I don't know what the circumstances of your life are. I don't know uh, what you're going through. But I do know this. Jesus has promised to never leave you or forsake you. He's promised to love you, to provide for you, to forgive you, and to be an advocate before the Father for you. And he will keep his promise. You see, the third note, what can we expect? The third sermon note, what can we expect? We can expect Jesus to fulfill his promises to us. He will be what you need in his time. Sometimes our expectations are wrong, but he knows what we need. He will fulfill those promises to us. The second thing I think we can expect is we can expect to be faced with a question that demands our response. Is he king or is he king of kings? You see, the crowds wanted a rescuer. They wanted somebody that would come free them from Roman occupation, and they missed their rescuer. Even though Daniel told them years ago he was coming. The Pharisees saw him as a fraud and called for his death of the so-called king, and they missed that long-expected Messiah that they knew was promised and was coming because their expectations and their religious piety got in the way. The Romans saw no evidence that he was a threat or a king, and so they simply released Barabbas instead, and they washed their hands of him. The disciples who entered the city welcomed, to welcome shouts of Hosanna, they remained with him for a time, but then they deserted him, and yet it's this group that ultimately remember and ultimately change the world. And again, that's the group I want to be a part of. Is he king or is he king of kings? So, more than just a day, this donkey ride, more than just a simple, gentle donkey he was a conquering king. He will return on a white horse someday. But on that day, he came as my salvation. So, what are my expectations? When I, when I see that coming, when I see Jesus coming, what do I expect and how do I react? My prayers is that this Palm Sunday and the events of this Holy Week and the things that we do like the podcast and the Good Friday service will serve as not just a reminder or something to check off our calendar, but as a way that draws us deeper into that question, is he king or is he king of kings? So if you're watching online, if you're sitting here this morning and you feel that stirring, that's okay. That's what the Holy Spirit does. If you want to talk to someone, um, I'll be hanging around the front. There are other staff members around that would be glad to talk to you. If you're online or you just want to put on your connection card, I need to talk, 
Make sure you give us connection points and we'll make sure that we connect with you. But this week, that's the question I want to start you off with. Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Is he king or is he king of kings and Lord of lords? Would you pray with me? Father, yes, thank you for the cross. Thank you for Resurrection Sunday that we'll celebrate next week. But Lord, thank you for coming on that donkey. Gentle salvation. Father, thank you for reaching down through time and rescuing me. Lord, there are things in my life I know that uh, take up too much time. I know that my expectations sometimes are wrong of what I expect from you. Lord, thank you that you have and know the answers. So, Father, I pray that uh, during this time and this week, Lord, you would take the unsettledness that I might have in my heart or my life about who you are, that I might begin to settle that question, that I might make you the king of kings of my life. So, Father, come. In Jesus' name, amen.